or just because the person they were meeting would be a better observer. The man did not turn as Hanzu approached. Was he unobservant or supremely confident? Hello, the man said softly just as Hanzu came up beside him. Please sit down. Hanzu slid into the booth opposite him and knew that he knew this old man but could not name him. Please don't say my name, said the man softly. Easy, said Hanzu. I don't remember it. Oh, yes, you do, said the man. You just don't remember my face. You haven't seen me very often, but the leader of the Jish spent a lot of time with me. Now Hanzu remembered. Those last weeks in command school, on Eros, when they thought they were in training but were really leading far-off fleets in the end game of the war against the Hive Queens. Ender, their commander, had been kept separate from them, but they learned afterward that an old half-Maori cargo ship captain had been working closely with him, training him, goading him, pretending to be his opponent in simulated games. Mazer Rackham the hero who saved the human race from certain destruction in the second invasion. Everyone thought he died in the war, but he had been sent out on a meaningless voyage at near light speed so that relativistic effects would keep him alive so he'd be there for the last battles of the war. He was ancient history twice over. That time on Eros, as a part of Ender's Jish, seemed like another lifetime and Mazer Rackham had been the most famous man in the world for decades before that. Most famous man in the world, but almost nobody knew his face. Everyone knows you piloted the first colony ship, said Hanzu. We lied, said Mazer Rackham. Hanzu accepted that and waited in silence. There is a place for you as head of a colony, said Rackham. A former hive world with mostly Han Chinese colonists, and many interesting challenges for a leader. The ship leaves as soon as you board it. That was the offer. The dream. To be out of the turmoil of Earth, the devastation of China. Instead of waiting to be executed by the angry and feeble Chinese government, instead of watching the Chinese people writhe under the heel of the Muslim conquerors, he could board a beautiful, clean starship and let them fling him out into space to a world where human feet had never stepped to be the founding leader of a colony that would hold his name in reverence forever. He would marry, have children, and in all likelihood be happy. How long do I have to decide? asked Hanzu. Rackham glanced at his watch, then looked back at him without answering. Not a very long window of opportunity, said Hanzu. Rackham shook his head. It's a very attractive offer, said Hanzu. Rackham nodded. But I wasn't born for such happiness, said Hanzu. The present government of China has lost the mandate of heaven. If I live through the transition, I might be useful to the new government. And that's what you were born for, asked Rackham. They tested me, said Hanzu and I'm a child of war. Rackham nodded. Then he reached inside his jacket and took out a pen and laid it on the table. What's that? asked Hanzo. The mandate of heaven, said Rackham. 
Hanzu knew then that the pen was a weapon, because the mandate of heaven was always bestowed in blood and war. The items in the cap are extremely delicate, said Rackham. Practice with round toothpicks. Then he got up and walked out the back door of the restaurant. No doubt there was some kind of transport waiting there. Hansa wanted to leap to his feet and run after him so he could be taken out into space and set free of all that lay ahead. Instead, he put his hand over the pen and slid it across the table, then put it into the pocket of his trousers. It was a weapon, which meant Graf and Rackham expected him to need a personal weapon soon. How soon? Hansa took six toothpicks out of the little dispenser that stood on the table against the wall, beside the soy sauce. Then he got up and went to the toilet. He pulled the cap off the pen very carefully, so he didn't spill out the four feather-ended poison darts bunched in it. Then he unscrewed the top of the pen. There were four holes there, besides the central shaft that held the tube of ink. The mechanism was cleverly designed to rotate automatically with each discharge. A blowgun revolver. He loaded four toothpicks into the four slots. They fit loosely. Then he screwed the pen back together. The fountain pen writing tip covered the hole where the darts would emerge. When he held the top of the pen in his mouth, the point of the writing tip served as the sighting device, point and shoot and blow. He blew. The toothpick hit the back wall of the bathroom, more or less where he was aiming, only a foot lower. Definitely a close-range weapon. He used up the rest of the toothpicks, learning how high to aim in order to hit a target six feet away. The room wasn't large enough for him to practice aiming at anything farther. Then he gathered up the toothpicks, threw them away, and carefully loaded the pen with the real darts handling them only by the feathered part of the shaft. Then he flushed the toilet and re-entered the restaurant. No one was waiting for him. So he sat down and ordered and ate methodically. No reason to face the crisis of his life with an empty stomach, and the food here wasn't bad. He paid and walked out into the street. He would not go home. If he waited there to be arrested, he would have to deal with any number of low-level thugs who would not be worth wasting a dart on. Instead, he flagged down the bicycle taxi and headed for the Ministry of Defense. The place was as crowded as ever. Pathetically so, thought Hanzo. There was a reason for so many military bureaucrats a few years ago, when China was conquering Indochina and India, its millions of soldiers spread out to rule over a billion conquered people. But now the government had direct control only over Manchuria and the northern part of Han China. Persians and Arabs and Indonesians administered martial law in the great port cities of the south, and large armies of Turks were poised in inner Mongolia, ready to slice through Chinese defenses at a moment's notice. Another large Chinese army was isolated in Setsuan, forbidden by the government to surrender any portion of their troops, forcing them to sustain a multi-million man force from the production of that single province. In effect, they were under siege, getting weaker, and more hated by the civilian population 
all the time. There had even been a coup right after the ceasefire, but it was a sham, a reshuffling of the politicians, nothing but an excuse for repudiating the terms of the ceasefire. No one in the military bureaucracy had lost his job. It was the military that had been driving China's new expansionism. It was the military that had failed. Only Hanzu had been relieved of his duties and sent home. They could not forgive him for having named their stupidity for what it was. He had warned them every step of the way. They had ignored every warning. Each time he had shown them a way out of their self-induced dilemmas, they had ignored his offered plans and proceeded to make decisions based on bravado, face-saving, and delusions of Chinese invincibility. At his last meeting he had left them with no face at all. He had stood there, a very young man in the presence of old men of enormous authority, and called them the fools they were. He laid out exactly why they had failed so miserably. He even told them that they had lost the mandate of heaven, the traditional excuse for a change of dynasty. This was the unforgivable sin, since the present dynasty claimed not to be a dynasty at all, not to be an empire, but rather to be a perfect expression of the will of the people. What they forgot was that the Chinese people still believed in the mandate of heaven, and knew when a government no longer had it. Now, as he showed his expired ID at the gate of the complex and was admitted without hesitation, he realized that there was only one fathomable reason why they hadn't already arrested him or had him killed.